From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 517 for the week of November 1st, 2015. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland Edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan a perfect Disneyland vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Tom Bell, and I'm joined by my good friends, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulatto-Willie, and Michael Bowling. And in this segment, Michael continues his celebration of Disneyland's 60th, no history this time, future this time, right? Well, actually, quite a bit about the future. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I'm I'm so glad we're doing this week this week because people are going to have withdrawals because there's no connecting with Walt this week. I right? know connecting with Walt goes on its hiatus for two right. months, but it'll be back in January with four so new is, episodes. This, so you get your but, your Michael fixed today. That's right. But this is a nice compliment to mm-hmm. connecting with Walt this episode. So, you might remember in our last episode, we talked about 1967 and the opening of Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, and that wasn't the only thing that opened in 1967. Uh, The new Tomorrowland, Walt's shining vision of an optimistic future, also (laughs) opened. Now, this Tomorrowland would be the Tomorrowland Walt had always wanted, but had neither the time nor the money to build in 1955. This iteration of Tomorrowland was a great leap forward. This was the first time the land of the future could finally be rid of its Walt Disney bestowed nickname, Todayland. <laughs> so, now science fiction author Ray Bradbury and Walt Disney were good friends. And one day over lunch in 1964, when Walt was planning the new Tomorrowland, Bradbury asked Walt, Walt, why don't you hire me to come in and help you with ideas to rebuild Tomorrowland? And Walt said, Ray, it's no use. You're a genius, and I'm a genius. After two weeks, we'd kill each other. <laughs> so Bradbury said that was the nicest turndown he's ever had, having Walt Disney <laughs> call him a genius. So Bradbury never got to work on Tomorrowland. But Walt Disney's interest in the future and technology was most evident in his three-episode Man in Space series for the Disneyland television show. And these episodes aired between 1955 and 1957, and they were titled Man in Space, Man in the Moon, and Mars and Beyond. And Walt and his production team worked closely with the well-known German scientist Werther von Braun, who served as a technical advisor for the Man in Space series. And in the early 1960s, Collier's Magazine invited Von Braun to publish his vision regarding space exploration. And the articles, which included illustrations from leading space artists, did more than any other medium to convince their four million readers that space travel was possible. But Von Braun knew that television had the potential to influence even more people. So together, Von Braun, the engineer, and Disney, the artist, used the new medium of television to illustrate how high man might fly on the strength of technology and the spirit of human imagination. And according to David R. Smith, the director emeritus of archives at Walt Disney Productions, 
Von Braun caught the attention of Disney's senior producer, Ward Kimball. The Collier series had appeared about the time that Disney decided to use television to promote Disneyland in California. Now, the theme park would include four major sections, Fantasyland, Frontierland, Adventureland, and Tomorrowland. Disney producers would incorporate ideas from Disney fantasy films like Snow White, Pinocchio, and others to promote the first area of the park. The second and third areas would be built around Davy Crockett and other adventure films. But Tomorrowland represented a real challenge. After reading the Collier articles, Kimball contacted Von Braun, who, according to Smith, pounced on the opportunity. So as a technical space consultant for Disney, Von Braun would join Heinz Haber, a specialist in the emerging field of space and medicine, and Willie Leetley, a famous rocket historian. And all three space experts had authored the Collier series. So Walt Disney introduced the first television show, Man in Space, which aired on ABC on March 9, 1955. The purpose, Walt said, was to combine the tools of our trade with the knowledge of the scientists to give a factual picture of the latest plans for man's newest adventure. He later called the show Science Factual. And the show represented something new in its approach to science, but it also relied on Disney's animation techniques. So through a combination of documentary footage and animation, this episode took a lighthearted look at rocket history, satellites, and what spacemen would have to face traveling in a rocket. The episode ran about 51 minutes and was mostly narrated by actor Dick Tuffield, and you might know him as the voice of the robot on the television series Lost in Space. Mm. Sort of ironic. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Man in Space was also edited down to 33 minutes and released to theaters as a documentary short subject, uh, along with the feature Davy Crockett and the River Pirates, which was a compilation of the final two Davy Crockett television episodes in 1956. So Man in Space was nominated for an Academy Award in the documentary short subject category, but lost to the true story of the Civil War. Nearly 42 people had originally seen the show in black and white on television, but in the days before DVDs and downloading, audiences were delighted to see it again in color on a large movie screen. The second episode in the series also aired in 1955 and was titled Man and the Moon, and it began with an animated sequence devoted to legends and superstitions regarding the moon, and it included the idea that the left hind foot of a rabbit found in a graveyard during the dark of the moon will bring good luck. And an educational brochure published to promote Man and the Moon said, This film represents a realistic and believable trip to the moon in a rocket ship, not in some far-off fantastic never-never land, but in the foreseeable future. Now, Von Braun narrates a section of the film and describes his ideas for a two-phase trip to the moon. And the first part of the effort would require building a space station. And this base would serve as the staging area for the second part of the trip to the moon. Our space satellite station will have the shape of a wheel measuring 250 feet across. 
This outside rim will contain living and working quarters for a crew of 50 men, Von Braun said. Just below the radio and radar antenna is an atomic reactor. Its heat will be used to drive a turbo generator which supplies the station with electricity. Now, Disney archivist David Smith noted that Von Braun invented a special spacesuit for Man in the Moon and nicknamed it the Bottle Suit. Hmm. And the suit, the suit represented a miniature space vehicle with its own atmosphere and rocket propulsion system, along with manipulator arms to accomplish assembly work in orbit. And just as he had done in Man in Space, Disney decided to illustrate Von Braun's technical concepts. For the second show, however, Disney used live actors to portray an astronaut crew departing from the space station for their journey around the moon. And the drama increases when a meteor strikes the ship and one astronaut has to put on a bottle suit to make the repairs. And originally, the air date for the third episode, Mars and Beyond, was scheduled for spring 1956, coinciding with Mars being closest to the Earth. Preparation for the episode had begun in 1954, and story meetings and filming sessions with Von Braun were completed before the launch of Sputnik. However, Ward Kimball and his team were delayed from completing that program to work on an episode that would have focused on the U.S. Navy's Project Vanguard, and they publicized as putting an artificial satellite into orbit supposedly in 1957. And after seeing the popularity of the first two Disney television shows devoted to space, the National Academy of Sciences and IBM, who were supplying the computer power for the project, wanted Disney to generate the same public support and enthusiasm for this project. But due to problems that delayed Vanguard and caused the U.S. government to turn their support to the United States Army's competing Redstone project, this episode never aired. So Mars and Beyond, the final episode, originally aired on December 4th, 1957. Once again, it was narrated by Paul Fries, and the episode discussed the possibility of life on other planets, primarily Mars. It began with a unique introduction by Walt Disney and his robot co-host, co-host um, Garko, who provided a brief overview. Unlike the previous two episodes, Mars and Beyond had a more serious tone as it profiled each of the planets in the solar system from the perspective of what would happen to a man on them. Through inventive Disney animation, the episode ended with a trip to Mars, and the missions showed six atomic-powered Mars ships, ultimately reaching 100,000 miles per hour, taking a 400-day spiral course to Mars, where they would spend 412 days on the surface before returning. So these three successful television shows were just a glimpse into Walt Disney's interest in space travel and a futuristic world of tomorrow. So the Man in Space series can be seen today on the 2004 DVD release, Walt Disney Treasures, Tomorrowland, Disney in Space and Beyond, and you can find it on YouTube. Um, the attractions that Walt Disney's Imagineers designed for Disneyland's new Tomorrowland of 1967 
were inspired by Walt's optimistic view of the future and his enthusiastic belief that technology would lead the way to a better tomorrow. And some of the elements from the television shows that I just talked about would find their way into some of the attractions in Tomorrowland. Now, Walt's original concept for Tomorrowland had been a vista into a world of wondrous ideas, signifying man's achievements, a step into the future with predictions of constructive things to come. And as we learned in a previous episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, the original Tomorrowland was primarily a collection of exhibits from companies such as Monsanto, Crane, and Kaiser Aluminum. In 1959, the original land was expanded with the addition of the Matterhorn bobsleds, the Disneyland Alweg monorail system, and submarine voyage through liquid space. That was the greatest expansion Disneyland had seen at that time. Now Walt had the opportunity to focus his attention once again on Tomorrowland. And he took advantage of his fame and had his Imagineers visit as many laboratories as possible. Companies like AT&T, General Motors, Ford, and NASA were happy to show the Imagineers around their facilities, as long as they swore to secrecy. The Imagineers would then return to the Imagineering offices in Glendale and determine which technologies could be used within the park. Transportation in the United States at this time was an important issue. Cities are becoming more crowded. More people were moving to the suburbs. Freeways were being introduced to more and more states across the country. Air travel was becoming more affordable. The first jumbo jet, the Boeing 747, and the first manned trip to the moon were just two years away. Walt's vision of the future would be called a world on the move. For more than three years, the Imagineers worked on the $23 million expansion. If you recall, just 11 years earlier, it had cost roughly $17 million to build all of Disneyland. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So (laughs) inflation and it shows also the sophistication of the attractions. Because we have to remember audio animatronics was still new to the 1967 audience. Pirates had just opened. The Haunted Mansion had not yet opened. And the um, Tiki Birds, you know, had been around for just a few years. But so so more audio animatronics were being added in to Tomorrowland. And they were much more sophisticated than even what, um, what guests to Disneyland had seen. So the new Tomorrowland would be five acres, twice the size of the original Tomorrowland. Now, at the same time, Walt Disney was also working on his biggest dream to build a community called Epcot, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, on his newly acquired property in Florida. And transportation was a major focus of Epcot. And to learn more about the Epcot City of Walt's vision, you'll want to listen to the Dis Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast that I host with Craig Williams. And Walt and his Imagineers designed transportation systems for the new Tomorrowland that also served as attractions to see how they functioned. And if these systems were successful, they would be incorporated into the city of Epcot. 
1967, Tomorrowland was used to test ideas for Walt's larger Epcot project in Florida. Now, despite Walt's passing in December 1966, construction on New Tomorrowland continued uninterrupted. So now let's all pile in a Ford Country Sedan station wagon and drive over to Disneyland. So, and of course, no seat belts for us to, to buckle up in. So before we get on the freeway, we had better fill up the gas tank for 30 cents a gallon. <laughs> and after parking the car, ride a tram over to one of the outer ticket booths and take $20 out of your wallet, because that's plenty for our little family of four here on the podcast team tonight. So we'd better get that 15 ride ticket book to make sure we ride all our favorite attractions. Ticket books in the summer of 1967 cost between $3.50 and $5.50, depending on the guest's age and how many tickets you wanted. And this included the price of admission to the park. So if everyone wants to ride some big additional attractions, e-tickets are $0.75 cents at the ticket booths inside the park. Individual D tickets are $0.60 cents each. C tickets are $0.35. Cents. B tickets, 25 cents, and A tickets are 10 cents. And that's usually the ones that you all went home with at the end of the yep. day. <laughs> now, when Tomorrowland, New Tomorrowland, opened on July 2nd, 1967, it had a new look, fresh and futuristic. Most of the previous Tomorrowland structures had been completely demolished to make way for new or improved attractions. The stark white color was of the space age and reflected Walt's optimistic spirit. The architecture was a blend of form and function in the mid-century modern style, and each show building perfectly fit its surroundings. Visible from Disneyland's Central Hub Plaza were Tomorrowland's two reflective silver spires, which drew your eye from the horizon up to outer space and back down to Earth again. And a similar effect happened with the main flight to the moon sign further west. This gateway to Tomorrowland was framed by water fountains and the two silver spires, which were the facades for America the Beautiful on the left and Monsanto's Adventure Through Inner Space on the right. Two deep black cube-like structures turned 45 degrees with raised silver lettering invited you into the new adventure through inner space and circle vision attractions. Two large ceramic tile murals are a warm and inviting contrast to the stark white of this future. One mural is on the Bell System Circle Vision 360 building. The other is on the Monsanto Adventure Through Inner Space building. And together the two murals form a work of art called The Spirit of Creative Energies Among Children. And if these murals remind guests of an It's a Small World in Fantasyland, there's good reason. These murals and the dolls in it, in It's a Small World, were designed by Disney artist Mary Blair. Now, at first glance, these murals seem to have nothing to do with the future or technology. So why are they so prominent in Tomorrowland? Because they actually are a depiction of the future. The North Mural on 
America the Beautiful shows children from different nations dancing and making music. Ribbons above their heads symbolize global communications. At the top of the mural, communication satellites bring the world closer together. The South mural on the Adventure Through Inner Space building is about energy, with nods to solar wind, wind energy, water power, and fire. So it's all the elements. Each mural is 54 feet in length. The North mural is 15 and a half feet high. The South mural is even taller because it begins closer to the ground. And these murals are timeless. Walt Disney personally chose to have Mary Blair's art bring a sense of optimism and joy to Tomorrowland. The murals reflect Walt's enthusiasm for the wonders of science and technology. He wanted us to embrace the future and welcome it. So do you remember seeing those murals? Did any of you ever see the oh, Mary yeah. Blair murals? Oh, yeah. yeah, those were beautiful. And they're still there. They're yeah. apparently significantly damaged, but they're still there. Underneath the... The Star the Wars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and and Buzz Lightyear murals, which I think if they took those down, nobody would miss them. Mm-mm. But um, I'm always hoping someday in the next reimagining of the park, they'll restore those murals. Mm-hmm. Now, below your feet, the walkways are in ocean blue. And above you, people mover vehicles travel smoothly and quietly along a long slender beam track supported by modern looking support beams. The people movers weave through every Tomorrowland show building. And John Hench, with assistance from Disney sculptor Mitsu, designed the supports for the Wedway people mover beam. And from below, looking up, the supports were designed to project an image of tree branches that were organic. The design features supports with soft, symmetrical shapes and arches. Now, Imagineer Rolly Crump designed the environmental elements, like the ticket booths and the Mad Hatter store, in the same style. And the circulation site plan was designed to minimize the distance a guest has to walk. So guests walking around the perimeter to each attraction only have to walk one half mile. Since many guests would see Tomorrowland from above in the monorail, people mover, and skyway, the landscape architecture was specially enhanced to be seen from above. The 90-foot rocket designed by Imagineer George McGinnis atop the People Mover Station with 12 revolving rocket jets on 18-foot-long control arms draw us further into the land. Placing the rocket jets on top of the People Mover Station was Walt's idea. And guests enter the rocket jet attraction through one of two gantry elevators to the upper level. On the second level is the Wedway People Mover. Now, the People Mover was Disneyland's fourth attraction that enabled you to see a large portion of the park. And do you know what the other three attractions are at this time that allow you to see the park? Railroad. Correct. The Disneyland Santa Fe Railroad. Skyway. The Skyway, correct. Mark Twain? Um, Well, the monorail. Actually, is what they were talking about. So, anyway, those all allow you to view uh, multiple um, parts of Disneyland. Was that the 
were we officially in Mon- Monorail now as opposed to the um, the Viewliner? Yeah, the Viewliner is gone now. Okay. By this time. Viewline, Viewliner, funny, only lasted that, about a year or so. That line so blurs for me some days. It's like, yeah. you know, you see those pictures and they're so iconic. And then I know, especially when you see the Viewliner right next to the, um, the steam engine, steam locomotive. Yeah. That's always one of my favorite photos. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Wedway People Mover was originally developed for Walt's Epcot. And Disney artist and Imagineer Mark Davis recalled that Walt was always looking ahead. He was very interested in the 60s in city planning. He had his people mover and he talked about taking a city like Los Angeles and having the people mover connecting stores and businesses and so forth, but all at the second story level. He was always ahead of things. He seemed to get bored easily, so he was always out on the edge. With the Wedway People Mover, Walt now had, as the press release described, a silent, all-electric, completely automatic, intermediate transportation system designed for variable speed, point-to-point shuttle transportation service. The opening day press release described it as a series of vehicles that never stop moving, even when passengers are boarding or debarking. I'd never heard that word before, debarking. Debarking? Yeah. I was heard As opposed to disembarking, yeah. Yeah, but I, that's what they wrote. Um, silent trains that glide along at predetermined varying speeds, automatically spaced vehicles that can't collide, motorless cars that eliminate the chance of one vehicle stalling all the others, compartment doors that slide open and close by themselves, a transportation system on which passengers never have to wait for the journey to begin. Now, the system has 62 continuously moving, fully automatic four-car trains. Each train is silent and motorless and can travel at varying speeds of up to 12 miles per hour and has the capacity or capability to travel up and down substantial grades. If you still look at that that people mover track, you know, when it's especially going up and over um, Utopia and the um, submarine voyage, it's going up a fairly good grade. So, um, the track is 3,250 feet. Each car has a speaker for the pre-recorded narration, and the system has a remarkable capacity to handle 4,885 guests per hour. However, on any crowded day, guests almost always had to wait because the escalator leading up to the people mover called the speed ramp was either malfunctioning or shut down. I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) If just one person slowed down or stopped at the top, the rest of the guests behind would slam into each other. So guests load the trains on a continuously moving platform. Imagineer Bob Gurr had designed this part of the project. He designed the loading platform as a groove turntable, and the cars would come around on the outer rim whilst guests um, boarded from the moving platform. He was so proud of his high-capacity, low-speed loading system, he rushed over to Walt's office to show him. Now, Walt had just returned from Europe, where he had attended an exposition in Geneva, Switzerland, and he examined Gurr's drawings and told him he had already seen the same type of platform at the exposition. So Walt sent Gurr to Geneva on July 4th, 1964, with a 16mm camera, where Gurr validated his design. 
Now, the Wedway People Mover provides guests with an overview of Tomorrowland that Walt wanted. As the trains leave the loading platform, they glide along the beamway toward the Tomorrowland Terrace. Guests can preview adventures through inner space as the train passed th- behind the mighty microscope and the post-show area. Our journey continues through the character shop, the second largest souvenir shop in Disneyland and travels back outside towards the Tomorrowland Bandstand before heading indoors and passing by the flight to the moon's mission control and the huge scale model of Progress City inside the Carousel of Progress. The trains return outdoors to wind over, under, and along the monorail beamway and give guests a view of the submarine voyage and Utopia. At times, the Wedway People Mover Beamway reaches up to 34 feet. And the final preview before returning to the loading platform is the pre-show area for the Circle Vision Theater. Only two entirely new attractions were built for New Tomorrowland, the People Mover and Adventure Through Inner Space. Both these attractions are still two of the most missed attractions at Disneyland, And they were both slow, steady, and had great scenery. Monsanto's Adventure Through Inner Space was Tomorrowland's first dark ride and the world's first Omnimover ride system. Many guests believe the Haunted Mansion with its black doom buggies was the first Omnimover attraction, but Adventure Through Inner Space and its blue Atommobiles was the first to open. These ride vehicles were two-passenger oval-shaped pods that surrounded guests and allowed them to only see forward. The Atommobiles could turn left or right or even travel backward. For the first time, the Imagineers could edit the scenes on a ride, using the eyes of the guests as a motion picture camera. By turning the vehicle left or right, the Imagineer could aim the guests directly at a specific scene, then cut the scene by spinning the car in the opposite direction. Right after opening the Monsanto House of the Future in 1957, Walt started thinking about a protozoa ride that would take patrons into the drop of water as seen through a microscope. And Walt believed There's great urgency today to interest young people in science as a profession. During this time, space exploration had captured everyone's attention, and children wanted to be astronauts when they grew up. Dr. Charles Allen Thomas, chairman of the Monsanto Company and a close friend of Walt Disney, became concerned that the other sciences were being ignored. And he wanted people to be excited about chemistry and the work being done at Monsanto, which Dr. Thomas believed produced products more relevant and immediate to the day-to-day needs of the public. Dr. Thomas wanted people to see what was really happening at the microscopic level. So Walt put Claude Coates in charge of the project. Xavier Atencio, Yale Gracie, Ed Johnson, and others also worked on the project and Dr. Thomas's goals for the attraction were focused on educating the guests. The 123 automobiles traveled 1.2 miles along a hidden 682-foot loop and were driven by 16 electronic motors from General Electric through cam-like activators along the track. The attraction took six minutes, 
Each automobile carried two passengers and loaded every three seconds from a revolving turntable. The attraction's capacity was 3,275 guests per hour. The attraction was placed in the same 21,773-foot square space that had been home to the original Hall of Chemistry. So guests entered through the 40-foot high silver polished facade. A water fountain of abstract form symbolized inner and outer space. For adults, the attraction was free. Children entered by using the free ticket inside the junior and child ticket books. Um, a Monsanto VIP guest lounge was adjacent to the loading area. As guests meandered down the curving ramp toward the loading platform, they passed eight display pods that previewed the attraction. It was then guests learned that they were to be shrunk down to the size of a water molecule using the Atomobile. Along one wall was a giant multicolor snowflake tracking screen, identifying where the ride vehicles were located. Along another wall was the mighty microscope, the most impressive and memorable object in the queue area. Mm-hmm. Guests, guests could see the Wedway people movers silently gliding behind the mighty microscope. The Mighty Eye microscope was 12 feet high and 37 feet long and was designed by Imagineer George McGuinness. From the queue, guests could watch full-size automobiles entering one end of the microscope, only to become visible again in a much smaller size inside the transparent barrel of the microscope. The automobiles appeared to shrink even smaller and were then blasted into the snowflake on the laboratory slide. The illusion was very successful, and many guests reported being afraid they would not return back to their normal size. Speakers inside each automobile allowed guests to hear the narration by character actor Paul Fries, perhaps best known to Disneyland fans today as the narrator for the Haunted Mansion and voiceover work in Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, external speakers along the route projected the voices of the tracking crew, and this is accompanied by a futuristic soundtrack by composer Buddy Baker. So now let's board our automobiles and go for a ride through inner space. Oh, and this is a family-friendly podcast, Musketeers, so no making out during the ride. So, so our automobiles glides into the microscope for Act 1. As we enter the room, we rotate backwards and become disoriented. In a few moments, we are surrounded by projections of snowflakes that transform into large, three-dimensional sculptures as we move forward. Continuing on our journey, the scale of the snowflakes grows larger and larger until the shapes become vague, creating the illusion we are progressively shrinking. In Act 2, the attraction was primarily set pieces rather than projections. More on this from Imagineer Exitentio later. In Act 3, we continue to shrink until we reach the threshold of inner space. Our automobile is surrounded by spinning projections of Mickey Mouse-shaped spheres of water molecules. We now enter a room surrounded by three large molecules wrapped in fluorescent beads and moved along with air pressure. 
We are now as small as a water molecule as we pass beneath three-dimensional water molecules spinning above us as we prepare to become subatomic. Do you hear voices? It sounds as if the tracking crew is worried about not receiving our atomobile signal and that we may be missing. Flashing electrons shower us as our atomobile is drawn forward by the pulsing nucleus of the atom, which looks like a miniature sun. In the final act, the snowflakes begin to melt, causing our atomobile to drop. Our narrator reassures us we are safe and back on visual. Looking up, we see a giant human eye peering down at us through the microscope. As our automobile approaches the unloading ta- turntable, we pass the Fountain of Fashion, which is a two-story hourglass of glycerin oil flowing down hundreds of microfilament strands surrounding mannequins dressed in the latest polyester fashions. Remember hmm. when smaller versions of these were popular in homes oh, yeah. with a Grecian-looking statue in them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Richard and Robert Sherman's Miracles from Molecules is playing in the background. Now, the post-show area included a new version of the Clock of the World, based on a projection of the world as seen from the North Pole, and a revolving disc allows guests to note the time anywhere in the world. So what did you think of your six-minute adventure through inner space? I can vividly remember writing that with my grandmother when I was six years old, and it was one of the few memories that and Small World and Pirates stuck with me for a lifetime. And that I was one of our favorites. Can you do you remember the Big Eye, Nancy? Mm-hmm. I remember the Big Eye. I remember being just wowed by like how small we were going to get, and I remember seeing the water molecules. And the the frozen snowflakes and and the crystals and knowing what they were because I had a big brother who was a science geek and he was nine. <laughs> I I remember being convinced that we were getting tiny and I'd be watching the people getting on their automobiles and going through the microscope and looking to see yeah that match she was wearing a yellow shirt and there's the yellow shirt and <laughs> I, I did the same thing I tried to match the guests and tried to figure out how long does it take to shrink. And all that. Yeah. We were such gullible little kids. Oh, I know. But it, but it also shows how effective that yeah. simple illusion was. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a very simple attraction, but it really did its job. Mm-hmm. Yep. So anyway, but it's funny because I was re, when I was reading about this, Dave Smith, the archivist hated this attraction. Really? And he, yeah. When, cause there, there was a little, you know, some Imagineers did not want to see this attraction go and, wanted to, you know, spruce it up a bit, you know, bring it up to more modern technology. And, mm. and Dave Smith was just, he felt its time had come, it needed to go. So, um, yeah, it really surprised me. So now, now after this attraction opened, um, the Imagineers learned an important lesson. Imagineer Exitentio reported, we did adventure through inner space with a big plate glass effect. The kids would go in there and spit on the glass. I know. We had also designed the sets to be close to the cars, and it gave more of a show to have those effects surrounding you up close. But the kids reached out and literally tore the sets to pieces. Anything they could touch, they grabbed. I guess when they were isolated in groups of two, they were more prone to misbehavior. 
That's why we can't have nice things at Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. To, That's to why you don't have a, a, a apple. an apple. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, to prevent further problems of this kind with misbehaving guests, the Imagineers developed a new concept they called the envelope of protection. Protection for the sets, not the guests. All future attractions would keep props and set pieces out of the reach of guests up to seven feet tall. You know, and I noticed this when I went to um, Tokyo Disneyland, how in the queues and even in some of the attractions, the set pieces are within reach. And the, some of the queues, like in um, Winnie the Pooh's Great Honey Hunt, they, they have these heavily detailed queues, like where you're walking through the playroom and there's a whole little tea set set up where you can just touch things. And I thought this would not survive the first day here <laughs> in Disneyland. And it just showed the difference in cultures, mm-hmm. you know, between us and Japan, that they were much more respectful towards uh, towards property so that Imagineers didn't need that big envelope of protection there. I'm assuming that hasn't changed since I was there. Um, opening one week before the other new Tomorrowland attractions was the all-new version of America the Beautiful in 360 Circle Vision, directly across from Adventures Through Inner Space. The new Circle Vision system used a larger 35mm film to not only provide a sharper image, but reduced the number of projectors from 11 to 9. And America the Beautiful was the first film to premiere in the new format, and this system became the cornerstone for Disney exposition film productions that will later travel to Canada and China and many other countries. This theater was larger. The screens and projectors were arranged above head level, and lean rails were provided for viewers to hold or lean against while standing and viewing the film. This version of the film took guests from Hawaii to Alaska and reveals the wide range of natural beauty to be found throughout America. America the Beautiful was a free show sponsored by the Bell System, American Mm -hmm. Telephone and Telegraph, and associated companies, and hosted by Pacific Telephone, which explains why the pre-show featured the high-tech wonders of picture phones, where guests could connect with a person supposedly in Chicago, and small fry phones for children so they could talk with their favorite Disney friends, such as Goofy, Snow White, Jiminy Cricket, Donald Duck, and of course Mickey Mouse. America the Beautiful was staffed with female Bell Telephone employees who worked in the park on six-month breaks from their official Bell positions. Hmm. Up to 3,000 guests could enjoy the show. On August 12, 1957, an original attraction received a major reimagining. The flight to the moon was ahead of its time when it opened in 1955, but needed a new updated look. In 1967, the journey began in Mission Control, referred to as the nerve center of Disneyland's spaceport. Rocket to the Moon's two dome theaters and its curvy building were removed, and a new building with a similar layout was built in its place and expanded so it could accommodate Mission Control. Guests now entered Mission Control and stood in long rows. Behind the glass was a staff of eight audio-animatronic technicians from Space Operations studying their display consoles. Their supervisor was Mr. Tom Morrow, the control center director who was giving instructions to the technicians. 
The live host or hostess interrupted Mr. Morrow and engaged him in a tightly scripted four-and-a-half-minute conversation. This was the first time a Disney attraction combined a live actor with an audio-animatronic figure. After being distracted by the landing of a wayward bird, guests boarded their Lunar Transport Flight 92. The Lunar Transport's capacity had been increased from 102 to 162 guests. Seats were arranged in two sections with four rows. Like the original version, these transports had two large screens on the wall, one screen on the floor, and another screen on the ceiling. The storyline was pretty much the same, with the addition of a conversation with an astronaut working on the moon and new motorized seats. The new seats had a movable lower cushion that would slide down upon takeoff, giving guests the illusion of increased G-forces and rise back up when the transport was in orbit to simulate weightlessness. The round-trip journey to the moon took 12 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so, And there are a lot of elements from the Man in Space television series that were incorporated into this version of Flight to the Moon. Now, Utopia also received some attention in New Tomorrowland. The Mark Seven car... The Mark VI car, I'm sorry, broke down even more frequently than the earlier versions. Imagineer Bob Gurr was tasked with the design of a new vehicle. Gurr examined all versions of the cars from 1955 till today with the goal of designing a reliable vehicle that would be the solution to all of Utopia's problems, the Mark VII. The Mark VII Bob Gurr designed was so strong it could survive a platoon of five moving cars hitting a platoon of five parked cars. 160 Mark VII cars were built for Disneyland. The cars became known as Stingrays. Of his design, Gurr said, That car came out before the 1968 Corvette Stingray, and I designed the surface development for the 67 Utopia car without ever seeing the Corvette. Henry Haga, a friend of Gurr's, was the principal designer of the 1968 Corvette, and Gurr showed Haga his outwork. I flipped when I saw his Corvette, and he flipped when he saw my Utopia car. These were two separate designs that looked exactly the same, right down to the cutoff spoiler on the back end. But the star of the whole show was the Carousel of Progress. Its arrival at Disneyland directly after its run at the New York World's Fair had been the motivation for redesigning Tomorrowland. When the show was moved to Disneyland, audio-animatronic technology had greatly improved. General Electric continued their sponsorship, and a round two-story building designed by John Hench was constructed in Tomorrowland, where the old space bar counter service eating area had been. For an in-depth examination of the Carousel of Progress, please listen to the 60 Years of Disneyland episode, The World's Fair Comes to Disneyland. We all know Walt liked to provide guests with previews of things to come, and he did this in Disneyland's Carousel of Progress. In the last scene in which Mother and Father are celebrating Christmas in their General Electric medallion home, hmm. outside their living room window, you could now see the Tower of Progress City. The significance of this was revealed in the final act. The other preview came in the final act, which was not in the New York version. 
which included an invitation for guests to board a moving speed ramp located directly in front of the seating area, center stage, and travel to the second level to view the model of Progress City, whose tower could be seen through the window in the previous scene. Now follow your host's instructions to see the new springtime of progress awaits you. Spring up out of your seats and head for the doorway to the future. Please keep moving. Don't stand in the way of progress. The model covered 6,900 square feet and measured 115 feet across, 60 feet deep, and scaled one-eighth inch to one foot. Guests viewed the model from one of three terraced rows, and at the center was the modern Cosmopolitan Resort Hotel Tower. At its base was the enclosed city center. The model contained more than 20,000 trees and shrubs, 1,400 working streetlights, and more than 4,500 structures that were lit from within, and 2,450 moving vehicles. The city included schools, stadiums, shopping centers, and an amusement park. All destinations were connected by working models of monorails, people movers, automobiles, and trucks. An airport and a general electric power plant were on the outskirts of the city. Each section of the community was highlighted during a four-and-a-half-minute audio-only presentation by mother and father. What most guests did not know was Progress City was a preview of what Walt intended to build on the 27,443 acres he and Roy had purchased in Central Florida. Walt Disney had shared his ideas for the city of Epcot in a television broadcast only months before the opening of New Tomorrowland. Walt Disney had recorded the film less than two months before his death. At the time New Tomorrowland opened, the public had very little knowledge of Walt's ideas for Epcot City in Central Florida. Progress City was Walt's vision for Epcot, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Imagineer Marty Scalar said that model almost exactly matched all our planning for Epcot. I think Walt got a kick out of doing this model, without having to say that he was going to build this big city, but it was all there for anybody to see. He was planting a seed through the show in the Carousel of Progress in Tomorrowland at Disneyland. There was Progress City visible out the window in the final scene of the carousel, and then you went upstairs and there was Walt's own model city. Despite all the, addition of the, 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 all the additions of the two new attractions and reimagining of the many existing Tomorrowland attractions, Walt was not finished with Tomorrowland. So, before we go on, so what memories do you have of the Carousel of Progress, and did you get to see Progress City? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I remember watching, um, when we'd go out there, we always wanted to see the little airplane that would take off from the airport that they had mm -hmm. in there. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I loved Progress City. I, I was just mesmerized by it, how the monorails moved and the people movers moved and were all lit up and all that. It was impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and, I, 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 and I remember, you know, a lot of times people will, if they have a some type of um, exhibit or something, people will just keep going, right? 
But this one, everybody stayed to see because he narrated about the city. And he would light up different sections. I remember that now. Right. He would light up different sections of the city as he talked about it. But yeah, Carousel of Progress was a was definitely a favorite of ours. Yeah, yeah. I never miss it when I go to Disney World. And only a small portion of the, um, well, about two-thirds of it or so, of Progress City model you can see in, on you know, along the... Um, the people mover in Tomorrowland. And, um, but you go by it so fast, you know, yeah. you can't really take it in. And it, it's not a working model, you know, anymore. And I, I talk more about the model on connecting with Walt and how it ended up in pieces, you know, over at Disney World. Okay. So what we used to see at Disneyland, they don't have at Disney, at Walt Disney World. No. As did, far as that's concerned. No, General Electric did not. When they wanted to move the Carousel of Progress over to the new theme park, the Magic Kingdom, because they wanted a new audience and they wanted to freshen it up a bit. So the final scene was changed. They wanted a new song written instead of a great big beautiful tomorrow where you're always looking ahead. They wanted the song, um, the song changed to reflect, you know, the here and now. And, uh, and, um, it also was more in line with what their, their marketing slogan was at the time. And because uh, they wanted people to spend money now, not always thinking about, you know, saving up for the future, you know, buy general electric appliances. And Hi. they didn't. So the, the model was cut up because originally they thought, you know, John Hench and everyone thought it was being moved to Florida. So it was put in storage. And then General Electric said, you know what? We don't, we're not going to have a post show. So John Hench had to go back and redesign a one story carousel of progress for Florida. And now they didn't need the model of Progress City anymore. And it was, and now so it was decided, um, well, they, they had some space along the, the people mover track. Um, they had some show space. So they decided to sort of wedge in a piece of, of the progress city into that into the existing space so you have what you have is the cosmopolitan resort um hotel tower you have the the, what was going to be domed but actually was going to be enclosed a city center and then you have about you have about two-thirds i think of the um the greenscape area and then you have almost a complete section of the low density um, housing area, sort of like the suburb yeah. of Epcot. And that's all there is, and nothing works. You know, nothing lights up or anything on it. Years so. ago, it would the the radiating um, traffic monorails that would go out to the suburb. Years ago, those would light up, but not any time. Yeah, and then and then they just threw away what the the parts that didn't fit. Along the people mover, so I'm glad we saw what we did because it was a natural progression of the whole show, right? As you went through all the different seasons, and and it would become more modern, more modern, and then here's what we're going to have tomorrow. Yeah. Oh so. yeah. Oh, it was perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because it was because yeah, it was after what they talked about in the final scene. You know, uh, you know where you know. Grandma and grandpa are going off in this, they, they live in a senior community, but the children are picking them up from the airport, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then you saw the whole city right there. 
So. So, Michael, was this a song that was also written by the Sherman Brothers? It was. Yeah. It was. Mm-hmm. It, it it just has to go to show you the talent because that that um, attraction moved in 1971. So mm-hmm. I was 11 when it moved, and from the time that it started showing in Disneyland, I still know the words by heart. Oh, it's a great big beautiful tomorrow. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and then, to the chagrin of everybody else who has yeah, to hear me sing yeah. it. And then <laughs> what's funny is you know they they restored. It's great, big, beautiful tomorrow. A few years ago, to the to the Carousel of Progress at Disney World, and people there were upset that right. their original song was being replaced <laughs> because they right. didn't they didn't realize that actually that wasn't the original song, but for them it was. Right, you that know, was a song they grew up to. Right, exactly. Well, that was the one I learned originally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd heard the the car- original Carousel of Progress song when I was six, um, but. Yeah, I had known that other song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to Google that one right now. I was going to say, no, but is that as catchy as Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow? It was. I okay. think it was for, the, if you grew up with it, it was. Okay. You know, just the way it's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow is catchy for us because we yeah, grew because up with it. I, you know, the Sherman brothers just have a, a talent to, um, ensnare your heart right when, oh, yeah. with their music and so yeah, now did, did they write the one for walt disney world also yes yes, yes. Okay. yeah they wrote both of them but they like they preferred the first one because they felt the first one more reflected um walt and his vision and his personality and they sort of wrote it for walt so it was their tribute to walt Wow. Yeah. It's now is the best time of your life. Yeah. Now is the best, best time. time. Right it's time, best now, whatever it is. Fun. Now is the time. Now is the best time. Now is the best time of your life. Something like but that. But I bet if you Which started singing It's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, then Nancy and I would join in. Yeah. Right, Tom, yeah. And we would yeah. sing uh-huh. it all. Right. <laughs> well, the other song, too, matched the marketing. Um that was when GE was really primed in their their the best time of your life marketing exactly. campaign. Exactly. And so it that, tied right on in. Yeah. That and that's what they wanted. So so like yeah, so I like I said, at least we can still see the carousel of progress at Disney World. Mm-hmm. So but like I now like I mentioned, um there was still something that Walt wanted to put into Tomorrowland. He wasn't finished with it. Another major attraction was planned, but it wasn't built for 1967's New Tomorrowland. Walt had an idea for a spaceport described as a towering structure of futuristic, uninhibited architecture containing new rides and exhibits, including an exciting journey into the depths of outer space and return aboard a special Disneyland re-entry vehicle in a ride equaling the thrills and excitement of the Magic Kingdom's Matterhorn bobsled run. Now, the plans for this spaceport, including the reimagining of the Flying Saucers attraction, and the Flying Saucers were going to be relocated under the spaceport. And although concept artwork for the spaceport was included in the early promotional materials for New Tomorrowland, it was not built in 1967 due to the high cost and the lack of the necessary technology for the attraction. But a version of the spaceport ended up being built first in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, but it was renamed Space Mountain. So, so two new stages were also built in Tomorrowland for live musical performances. 
So to recap, 1967's New Tomorrowland included um, the addition of two new attractions, uh, the People Mover and Adventures Through Inner Space. One attraction was brought in from outside the park. That was the Carousel of Progress. Three attractions were improved and renamed. Rocket to the Moon became Flight to the Moon. Astrojets became Rocket Jets. Circarama USA became Circle Vision 360. One attraction was to be moved and improved, but this never happened. And that was the Flying Saucers were to be built under the Spaceport or Space Mountain. One major attraction was planned, but was not built for another 10 years in 1977, the Spaceport, as I mentioned, later named Space Mountain. Two new stages were built, Tomorrowland Stage and Tomorrowland Terrace Stage. Six previously built attractions remained. The House of the Future, but that would be removed by 1968. Um, Tomorrowland Utopia, Skyway to Fantasyland, Matterhorn Bobsleds, which were part of Tomorrowland in those days, um, the Monorail, and Submarine Voyage Through Inner Space. Now, t- the Tomorrowland Utopia, Matterhorn, and Submarine Voyage were provided beautiful new landscaping in this beautiful new surroundings, but they experienced few changes themselves as part of the new Tomorrowland. Yet New Orleans Square and Tomorrowland weren't the only realms that received attention in 1967. In Adventureland, a new village with dancing natives and two new gorillas moved into the Jungle Cruise. And at the New York World's Fair, Walt Disney was impressed with the work of glass cutters Tomas and Alfonso Arribas and had been encouraging them to bring their craft to Disneyland. So the Arribas brothers opened on Main Street, USA in 1967. On November 20th, 1967, Disneyland sought and got approval from the Anaheim Planning Commission to expand the borders of the park north and south on land they already owned. The extra land was needed to accommodate guests. By the end of 1967, over 7.9 million guests had visited Disneyland, so its total attendance had reached 67 million. Since opening day, the park had more than doubled the number of attractions from 22 to 52, representing a total investment of $95 million. Disneyland now covered 70 acres, with an additional 115 acres for parking and backstage services. The economic success of Disneyland had a tremendous impact on the surrounding community, which led to the construction of Anaheim Stadium, which opened in 1966 as the home of the California Angels baseball team, and a 9,100-seat Anaheim Convention Center, which opened on July 12th of 1967. Um, The Anaheim Hotel and Motor Inn accommodations grew from 60 rooms in 1955 to more than 6,500 rooms Mm. in 1967. In just 12 years, Anaheim had grown from a sleepy agricultural community to a world-class destination. So in my next episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, we'll knock on the door of that beautiful antebellum mansion that has been sitting vacant alongside the banks of the rivers of America for 12 years and see if anyone is at home. Perhaps we'll be invited in for a visit. Many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, including The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dreams by Sam Genoway, and Disneyland, The Inside Story by Randy Bright. 
And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. Nice. That is going to do it for the segment of the Does Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Disneyland shows this week. And, of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.